Good evening. Well, I sat here on Thursday night and said to you, I feared escalation. Not just escalation of words, but of action too. And over the course of the last 24 hours, up to 30 cruise missiles hit a site just 12 miles from the border with Poland, which, of course, is a NATO country. We also hear from the Russian government that supplies that are coming into the country, whether they are British, American, whether they come from Norway, wherever, that those convoys going into Ukraine, arming the Ukrainian army, they will now be considered to be legitimate targets. So the war continues. The war gets more serious. The war moves further to the west. The people of Maripol have now had an estimated 2,000 civilians killed. Nothing is getting any better. And yet, in many ways, Putin's military campaign is struggling because there's no question he's meeting a much stronger Ukrainian resistance than he ever believed would happen. Oh, the world holds its breath, fearful, particularly because Putin himself has dared to even talk about the possible use of nuclear weapons. It's almost unbelievable, inconceivable, but it's happening. And yet, in the middle of all of this, is a peace deal possible? Well, I think it is, and I'll tell you why. Those two eastern provinces are Russian-speaking provinces in the same way that the Crimea was back in 2014. And I think a peace deal could be struck if Vladimir Putin still possesses the rational function, and it would mean Ukraine effectively having to say to those two eastern provinces, OK, you have a referendum, you decide your future, you decide whether you stay part of Ukraine or whether you join Russia. And, of course, the likelihood is they would join Russia, but, hey, in a referendum, as we learned, you can never, ever predict the result. It would mean Ukraine making quite a major concession. But it may just be that's the only way to get Putin to withdraw all of his forces. But the problem is, who is the peace broker? Because very clearly, it is not the leader of the free world. Very clearly, it is not Joe Biden, who frankly is not fit for purpose. No, it's China. Increasingly, Putin is having to turn to China to sell his oil and gas in the future. And China faces a very big strategic decision. If they go with Russia, lock, stock and barrel, they will damage, perhaps irreparably, their terms of trade with the rest of the world as we begin to seek alternatives. Or could China, could the Communist Party in China, the people that I've feared for many years, could they be the people in this situation that could broker a peace deal? Let me know, what do you think? Is a peace deal possible? Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss this is former diplomat and senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, Charles Parson. Charles, good evening. Good evening. I'm looking, hoping, praying that somewhere an interlocutor comes in that both sides have a level of respect for. And I'm thinking to myself, Charles, that China is the only possible option at this moment in time. How do you see it? Well, I, I don't know whether actually Xi Jinping has that sort of leverage with, with Putin. I mean, it goes back right to the question right at the start of did Putin tell him before 
the invasion that he was going to go in. Um, because if he didn't, then I think that shows the level of trust between them. And if he did, either Putin tried to dissuade him, in which case, again, he wasn't very successful, or he didn't even bother to try. Um, uh, and, and that, I think, tells you a lot about the way the Chinese view the whole situation. They've not got a great deal of experience in, in diplomatic terms. Um, they are seen, particularly since the 4th of February statement, when they talked about the renewal of their friendship treaty and uh, no limits to their cooperation. Um, they're seen as, as, as a bit on the side of, of the Russians. So um, I'm not as optimistic that, 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 that the Chinese will do much more than um, continue with the rhetoric. And then um, if eventually Putin uh, has, has to sue for some form of, of, of peace, uh, will try to come in and, and, and take some credit for it. But as to actual agency, I, I, I wonder. Well, I mean, we're all wondering, of course. I mean, reports over the weekend, American reports over the weekend, that Russia had asked China for more weapons. I mean, that's not been confirmed. And I completely understand what you say, that China is not used to playing a big role on the world stage. But isn't it true that the sanctions are really biting very, very hard? There is a quite big likelihood that Russia is going to default on some of its uh, debt repayments coming up on Wednesday of this week. I mean, in a sense, hasn't the war given Putin few outlets, few economic outlets long term than China? Isn't that the lever that China, if it chose to, could use? It's certainly got the leverage if it choose, chose to. Um, I mean, if, if, for instance, China imposed sanctions in the way that uh, the West has, uh, I think Russia would have no choice. Um, but China never likes to use sanctions. I think it has done once in, in, in the case of North Korea, but it's pretty, it's pretty lukewarm there now. There's a lot of loopholes in, in that. So I don't see China ever imposing those sorts of sanctions on Russia. And in any case, uh, at the back of China's mind in the long term, it sees a far greater threat coming to it from, from America and, and liberal democracies than it does from Russia. It benefits from Russia. I think actually had Xi Jinping, if he had been told about the invasion, probably thought, well, on balance, probably not a bad thing. If it goes quickly, uh, then, then our advantage will be served. Of course, it hasn't gone quickly. Uh, and it doesn't look as though, I mean, even if we're Putin to win in the next few months, what's he going to win? I mean, an appalling situation that, that really, I, I think, is not to the benefit of Russia or the world or actually China. So, um, no, China's got leverage. I just don't see it using it. No, well, I understand that point completely. I was hoping you'd say different, but I do understand the point. So what is Putin's way out? Because a man like that, you know, if there's going to be a peace agreement, he does need some way out, doesn't he? He needs some way in Moscow of saying to the Russian people, we've achieved something. What would that be? Very hard to see. I mean, as, as you said earlier, the, the, the sort of effects that are going to be on the Russian people as, as sanctions really start to bite, uh, you know, the rubles plummeted, inflation is going to go in the opposite direction. People are going to start wondering there in Russia what it's all about, particularly as, as the body bags come back. Um, however hard you try to hide that, people will know that, that mothers have lost, lost sons, etc. So I find it very difficult to, to see any way out other than through continued continued repression to it. Well, that may well be right. Charles, while I've got you, I must ask you, uh, with all your diplomatic experience, uh, just bring our audience up to date with what's happening in Hong Kong. 
Um, well, um, the, the, I mean, it depends which which angles you're you're referring to. Um, but in terms of the sort of dealing with COVID, not at all, not not at all good. Um, but but I don't think that's necessarily. I mean, it's political in the sense that that Hong Kong has aligned itself so clearly with the Chinese strategy on COVID. Um, but I think that today's news about the the um, uh, warning that's gone to Ben Rogers, who's the in charge of Hong Kong Watch, mm, which yeah. is Joe, that that is, it's been a, a, a thorn in the side of, of Hong Kong and China, uh, is is an un, is not a surprising development, but but a very um, uh, indicative one of the sorts of of um, bullying. I think it's totally counterproductive. It's not going to um, make Hong Kong watch any 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 quieter, uh, and and it just shows the nature of the regime. Can I just very briefly go back to Ukraine because I think there's one angle that really hasn't 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 been um, taken much in, in in the news so far, and that is that in 2013, Xi Jinping personally signed a treaty of friendship with Ukraine. And if you look at some of the articles in that, where it talks about you know if if there's anything that damages the sovereignty, security, or territorial uh, uh, integrity of the other, they will come to the to, to their help. Or or you know so so you know if if China were to, to give weapons to to Russia, that would just be so totally in contradiction to 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 that. I mean, there are other clauses which are just equally embarrassing for for the Chinese, given what they promised Ukraine. And what it shows, going back to your Hong Kong thing, and this is why it, it came to mind, is that no matter that that in this case China has signed uh, an agreement with a country, or in the case of Hong Kong, it signed an agreement with us, registered at the United Nations. It's quite happy just to to ignore them or or, or break them as it suits it. Yeah. So no, there's I'm the sure that's right. But you want to put together. But, but in a sense, they've got tremendous leverage with both the Ukrainians and the Russians. They could be the peace broker, but Charles Parton uh, giving us a pessimistic view as to whether they would want to do so. Charles Parton, thank you very much indeed for joining us an this evening. And apologies for pessimism. No, 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 no. It's what you believe, and thank you. Um, yeah, I wish Charles Parton had said different, because I can't see anybody else stepping in as the peace broker. It's not going to be anybody in the European Union. It's not going to be us. It certainly isn't going to be the man that spends his weekends in a bunker in Delaware, uh, Joe Biden, who's supposed to be the leader of the free world. And so the war continues. Now, one of the consequences of this, of course, is that we, having massively underinvested in the North Sea over the course of the last few years, are now looking for more sources of oil, having said we're going to wean ourselves off Russian oil over the next few months. So the alternative appears to be Saudi Arabia. We're told the Prime Minister will go to Saudi Arabia next week. Um, I wonder, you know, it was interesting, wasn't it? Newcastle United played Chelsea at football yesterday. Chelsea, of course, under sanctions, their, their, their owner, Abramovich, up for sale. Newcastle United, owned by Middle Eastern money. And on Saturday, the Saudi Arabians executed a record number in one day, 81 people executed. We don't know the method, but we suspect it would be beheading, in most cases, with a sword. So are we right to go to Saudi Arabia? Well, joining me to discuss this is Mark Armand, director of the Crisis Research Institute, Oxford. Mark, um, it's kind of, in terms of moral judgments, doesn't matter really where you go in the world, we face difficulties, don't we, with each decision? Yeah, the great problem is that 
the good lord at the creation wasn't didn't have us to advise him to put the natural resources in a nice cozy social democratic country instead he put the oil in the middle east or in russia and so most of the places that have things that are essential to the running of the world economy are run by people who live off that enormous revenue they get from oil and natural gas they don't need to worry too much about what people think about human rights and democracy at home or abroad and so saudi arabia is one obvious source potentially of, of an increase in oil if we're going to cut ourselves off from russian oil russian diesel which plays a big role in, in our fuel economy but on the other hand saudi arabia is not only as you say fairly internally very it also is after all engaged in a very brutal bombing campaign in yemen so many of the things the russians are doing the saudis are doing too now it may well be that russia is the main practicing well because it's in europe it's closer to us but i think we have to face up to the fact that if we're going to get around the fact that the Russians can in a certain way sanction us by not selling us their raw materials, or we sanction ourselves by buying them, we've got to go to countries that are not particularly ethically attractive. Saudi Arabia is one, maybe Iran is another, possibly Venezuela. What do we do? All yeah. these countries have serious issues. I mean, in a sense, Mark, in a sense, in the Middle East, mm. there's kind of a choice here, isn't there? We either go with Iran mm. or we go with Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's a little bit the devil and the deep blue sea. What do you think Boris Johnson's chances are of encouraging the Saudis to increase oil production? Because thus far, despite the rocketing price, they appear to be somewhat reluctant. Well, one of the problems, of course, is the Saudis certainly have snubbed by Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. The real ruler didn't take the call last week. The Saudis have been looking more and more to China and India, for instance, as new economies, booming economies that are going to take up the slack as Western countries do move over to green energy, go over to electric cars. So the problem is we have a limited capacity to say to the Saudis, who else are you going to sell it to? Because whereas 40 years ago, the Europeans and North Americans were the big buyers, now China, India, many countries around the world are seeing the car ownership and everything else booming. So we have less leverage, although Britain has some considerable influence. Many people don't like the fact that we have a cosy relationship with Riyadh, but we have had for many, many decades and with the Emirati. The question is, will they say that's a cosy relationship that's got a future, or are they saying we'll discount these old partners because they're losing market share, as it were, in a future world? And when it comes to Iran, just quickly, um, over the weekend, reports that Iranian rockets went into Iraq, into northern Iraq, into the Kurdish area. Yeah. Not, not too far away from a US military installation. Uh, and yet, despite all of this, um, there is talk from the American administration, talk also from the European Union, of the Iran deal being back on the agenda. Where does the UK now sit with this, now that we're outside European foreign policy? Well, I think we, are, of course, are a permanent member of the UN Security Council, so we are needed to provide a vote carry through any deal that's done, whether it's a good idea. We can see the Iranians, for instance, were supposed on Wednesday also to be talking to the Saudis, and they've cancelled. The Russians and the Iranians are also doing some sort of deals behind closed doors too. So the great problem is Iran is a partner that has its own agenda, and it so far has been very recalcitrant, firing missiles, as you say, towards the American and perhaps an Israeli position too. And so we have are any of these people really reliable? And then you have to say, well, in the past, historically, we've preferred to deal with one little devil and break up. And that's very different now to sell in an age when everything is presented with ethical, foreign policy and human rights. But it may be something that Boris Johnson is going to have to try and sell publicly. 
Yeah, these are all very, very difficult choices. Mark Arman, thank you again for joining me here. So is a peace deal possible, however ghastly things look, in Ukraine? Certainly our China expert, Charles Parton, didn't think so, but I can't see other than the Chinese president who actually could be the peace broker. But I do think a deal could be possible. Putin could be given a way out if those eastern provinces were offered a referendum. And I really do believe that. Jordan says, I'm sceptical, but I hope so. Otherwise, hundreds of thousands of innocent people will probably die. Maybe millions. Stuart says, it's always possible. Everyone has a price. Well, it's not so much a price. It's an honourable way out for both sides. It's not easy, but it must be possible. Margaret says, not while that clown Zelensky is in power. Well, he's very popular amongst Western media, I can tell you. Bob says, it has to be. It's the only way out. Karen says, no, the damage and harm Putin has caused for Ukrainian people is beyond unforgivable. Besides, Putin doesn't want peace. His narrative is dominance. If he fails, he'll try to force action from NATO. Well, he can try and do that, but if he gets NATO involved in a conventional war, he will be crushed. Of that, I have no doubt at all. John says, Russia needs to surrender first of all. Well, yeah, that's wishful thinking, I, I believe. Brenda says, nope, God knows what the Russian soldiers are thinking when instructed to fire onto Ukraine homes and its people. Sue says, nope, evil Putin is in too far now. And Jay says, finally, hope so, but with the Ukraine president, he won't let it happen. Well, there we are. Pretty balanced view there here on GB News uh, of people who are uh, <laughs> anti-Putin and some who are anti-Zelensky. I think through all of it and through the failures of history, and I've said much about this in the past, and I thought we've made many big geopolitical errors, but the fact is that Putin has invaded a sovereign country. There is no doubt that that vast area of Western Ukraine does not want to be Russian. But I still think a deal is possible. Now, as I said before the break, I paid £1.74 a litre, £1.74 a litre for diesel on the forecourt yesterday. I simply couldn't believe it. Um, but, you know, I'm fortunate I can afford to do it. But there are millions, millions, for whom this is going to be a disaster. Not just in terms of choices they make in their personal lives, but in terms of running their businesses. And we're getting reports of a staggering increase of the number of people going onto forecourts, filling up and driving off without paying. We're getting reports that some chains are offering petrol and diesel up to 20 pence a litre cheaper than those neighbouring them in the high streets, and there are massive queues forming. Uh, it sounds to me, maybe not quite as bad yet, as the fuel crisis a few months ago. But it sounds like chaos out there. Well, let's find out what's really going on. I'm pleased to be joined by Edmund King, president of the AA. Edmund, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. So the reports are, media reports are, a 200% increase in people filling up and simply driving off. Uh, do you have evidence to back up that claim? Yeah, it is interesting, Nigel, because even reports before this crisis from the fuel industry showed that £100 million a year was lost on forecourt crime. And actually, quite interesting, a lot of that was people would fill up and then found that they didn't have the means to pay. And that wasn't 
always criminal. You know, it could be you've left your wallet at home, you haven't got your credit card with you. So that was a bit of a problem anyway. There have been reports, as you say, more recently, that due to the extra cost at the pumps, which we've all seen, that this has increased. Now, some garages do address it in different ways. Some you have to give your credit card details first, or mm. as you would know, in America, in California in particular, you can never fill up without paying. And I always found that a bit of a struggle because if you don't know exactly how much you want to put in, how much do you put on your credit card? But you know you can keep the credit card open. So some garages are actually uh, do, doing that as well. But there's no doubt, you know, we are now seeing for the average car is costing about £90 a tank to fill it up. And that's an increase of almost £30 in just a year. So some people, I think, legitimately are going into garages, filling up like they normally do, and then seeing the price is actually a lot higher than they thought. And they might not actually have the cash for it, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a mixed picture out there, Nigel, but it, it certainly is a problem. And these prices are hitting people. But obviously, that is no excuse for any criminal behaviour. No, of course. I mean, look, not just America, but in France, if you drive down the French motorways at night, uh, they're unmanned stations. You put, as you say, you put a credit card in, you say, I want 50 euros worth, mm. and you might find, actually, that you've been diddled because the tank wouldn't take that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think, you know, we're going to have to move to a system uh, of credit card registration first to end this, I think. On a broader point... Yeah, I, th yeah. I think that also, though, Nigel, that... You know, we have become more a cashless society during lockdown. Obviously, we've no noticed that. So, you know, more people have access to credit cards. So, it's, and the way that prices are going, you're not talking about purchases under five pounds anymore. No, 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 you're, no, you're really not. Now, Edmund, I mean, the effect of this, of course, on ordinary folk uh, and making decisions whether you know whether to visit their parents at the weekend or. Mm whether to go on a long drive for the day out are going to be big. Uh, the impacts on business and the knock-on costs uh, for consumers uh, clearly are going to be very big and very inflationary indeed. Now, the Irish government last week responded to all of this mm. with a 10% cut in fuel duty. And I understand there are massive demands made on the Chancellor. Next Wednesday, we have the spring statement, the sort of spring budget, basically. Um, are you as the AA lobbying, campaigning, like Ireland, mm. for us to have a cut of fuel duty at this very difficult time? Yeah. I mean, actually, Nigel, this is something we raised a while ago, and, you know, we call it a fuel price stabiliser. So if, say, for example, the cost of a barrel goes above $75, you could reduce the fuel duty. Yeah. If it then drops below $75, you could increase the fuel duty so that you get a more level price. Because the government actually is profiteering, even or profiting, even though fuel duty has remained the same for about 11 years at 57p, as the pump price goes up, the amount of VAT they take at 20%, it used to be 17.5%, goes up. So there is some flexibility for the Chancellor 
to actually introduce a fuel, uh, fuel price stabilizer, but, but still get about the same level of income due, due to the increased VAT. So that's certainly something we've suggest they look at because as you say, it's affecting ordinary people. They're either having to pay the price and cut back on journeys if they can, but if they can't, all our surveys show they're cutting back on other household expenditure, You know whether that's food or clothing, Etc. And obviously, for businesses, you know, ninety-five percent of goods on the high street arrive by road. The majority in vans and trucks, etc. And that is just fueling inflation and pushing up the prices. So we do think the chancellor could act on this. There's one glimmer of hope that the kind of global prices and the wholesale prices in the few last few days have dipped a little bit. We haven't seen that at the pumps yet but we have seen that. The other thing we hear that Boris Johnson is going out to Saudi Arabia, he could encourage the Saudis or OPEC to increase production. And if there's more production, more availability, prices should drop. So there are a few possible things that, that could be done, but there's no doubt at all. It is hitting millions of motorists and millions of businesses at the moment. Yeah, it would be very welcome, wouldn't it? Next Wednesday, to hear some positive news on fuel duties. And I completely agree with your idea on that $75 a barrel. If it's over it, you cut the duty. If it's under it, you put it up. It makes so much sense. Edmund King, thank you very much indeed for joining me tonight. Thanks very much, Nigel. Here on GB News. Yeah, and that's a very common sense idea that Edmund King is putting forward there. I don't know about going to Saudi Arabia and urging them to increase production. I've got an idea. Why don't we increase our own production? Why don't we forget what Nicola Sturgeon and others have been saying in Scotland, actively discouraging investment in the North Sea at these prices? The North Sea is very, very profitable indeed. Surely, Mr Johnson, the answer is to produce more of our own oil, which leads me on to I What the Farage, which was, of course, this time last week. The Prime Minister, in response, in response to campaigns that are springing up for us to become independent in terms of our energy sources, responding to between 30 and 40 of his own backbench MPs who are questioning the wisdom of his net zero policy and of commentators in the media. Last week, he gave us a promise and he said he'll have an energy independence plan for this country that he would set out in the course of the next few days. He said he was ready to remove barriers to investment in homegrown production. Well, I said at the time on this show, I was really, really pleased to hear that change of mood coming from number 10. But so many times in the last 12 years, I've seen Conservative governments that say things that please the crowd, but then never actually deliver on them. So, Mr Johnson, I'm waiting for your energy independence plan. I'm very pleased that when you promised it, I didn't hold my breath. <laughs> but I tell you what, you've made that pledge and you need to say something. And the Chancellor next Wednesday needs to also make it clear we're going to adopt a very different approach. Another What the Farage moment. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is launching a new campaign to tackle misogyny and violence against women in particular, he's going to be working on football and rugby clubs 
across London to get that message out through stadiums, out through crowds. Now, Sadiq, I don't for one moment think that it's wrong to launch a campaign that is fighting violence against women. But there is legislation in place for all of these things already. I sense what you're really doing is talking about language, language that you deem to be sexist or homophobe or, or racist or any of those things. I actually think, as Mayor of London, there are two priorities perhaps that matter more than words that people utter. One are the number of people whose houses are burgled who don't now even get a visit from the police. I mean, that's unbelievable, but it's true. And it's happening on an increasing scale. And the second is rising knife crime. Record levels every single year of young teenagers being stabbed and quite a lot of them now dying on the streets of London. And I think the priority for policing, the priority for crime, should be actual harm against the person as opposed to nasty words. Just my view. More response coming in as to whether a peace deal is achievable. John says, could and should have been made before all the violence and death. It was possible before all the outside countries got involved. I'm not sure that's true. One viewer says, Putin and his civilian killing army have shown to be totally untrustworthy. How is a peace deal of empty promises worth trusting? Well, look, you have to try. That's the answer to that. You have to try. George Orr is better than World War, as Churchill said. Tony says, no, Putin wants total destruction of Ukraine. How many lines does he have to cross before we take them out? Well, fighting talk. Martin says, it is possible, but the US must end all involvement in Ukraine and they remain independent of the EU. Another viewer says, only if Russia pack up and go home, which doesn't look very likely, does it? Well, I have to say, folks, there is not a great deal of optimism around this evening. I'm here with Fleet Street legend and columnist Gary Bushell, but before I show him, he is an Englishman through and through, proud to be English, a man that wants St George's Day to be a public holiday. Let's hear a little bit of Gary Bushell on England. European? Never. I was born English and I will die English. To be English is to be part of the world's richest culture. From this sceptered isle sprang talents as diverse as Kipling, Chaplin, Dickens, Shakespeare, Nelson and Joe Strummer. <laughs> Gary Bushell. Nigel. Welcome to Talking Past. How long ago was that? That was a, a, young, a much younger man. Well, it was a younger Gary Bushell, but I don't, I don't think the sentiments have changed at, at all, all, have they? Not at all. I, I mean, I feel very passionately about England and the fact that we, we're probably the only country in the world where we're not supposed to be proud of who we are and we can't celebrate St George's Day. It's some terrible sin if we do that. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because we've got St Patrick's Day coming up. Yeah. Thursday of this week, yeah. and down at Cheltenham, they'll all be going mad and celebrate, and there'll be parades in New York. But somehow, I think it's, it's been a problem ever since the George Orwell wrote about it in the 30s, yeah. that a certain, a certain type of English intellectual has a snobbery about... A, a, a dislike of their own country and a snobbery about anyone who, who celebrates... I'm not, we're not saying that we don't like other people. We just say, we've got a culture, why can't we have... Why can't we enjoy it? It's funny, you know, I've watched for sort of 30, 40 years, the BBC particularly. I know you love the BBC. 
<laughs> the BBC almost being champions of, you know, Irish nationalism. Yes. Scottish yes. nationalism, Welsh nationalism. But any hint of English identity and, oh, my God. Look at the Queen Vic, Nigel. The Queen Vic... Over these years, they've had special days for Diwali, they've had special days for you, um, the uh, American Independence Day. Yep. St George's Day, whoa, whoa, whoa. sometimes they have a flag up. Once they had it as a storyline when it was an Alfie Moon con. But the rest of the time, it's just, oh, I can't have that. The idea that there's, it's the only pub in East London that doesn't have anyone who's going to celebrate <laughs> in St George. Gary, you've, you're still writing columns. You're doing Star, Sunday Express, all sorts of things that you do. You've been in Fleet Street for decades. I have. You've written for every tabloid paper. Pretty much, yeah. You've written millions of words. Yeah. Um, I was keen to talk to you. Your time on the sun, in the 80s on the sun. I remember going, I remember my first day, Nigel. I remember going up there, and I'd never been in a newspaper before, I'd come from the rock press, I'd, yeah. the music press. Um, and Nick Ferrari on that first day gave me a guided tour of the sun building. and. The bizarre desk, the showbiz desk, was on one floor and the news desk was underneath. And he took me down and there was this man effing and blinding and hollering like some mad tramp, pointing and jabbing at the news desk. I thought, sit to Nick, who's this fella? That's the editor, he said. <laughs> Kelvin McKenzie. That was Kelvin. <laughs> the wild, mercurial, brilliant and sometimes dangerous Kelvin McKenzie. Now, Kelvin sat in that seat a few months ago on, on this him, segment. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to him, Kelvin, you were a tyrant. And he, he said, yes. Of course it was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Fleet Street, it must have been, for all its faults, it must have been enormous fun in those days. It was incredible fun. I mean, that very first day, Nick took me to the Printer's Pie pub and I was in the company of David Banks, who we just lost, and Nick and uh, David Hancock. And it was so funny and they were so quick. And I thought, how on earth can you keep up with people like this? No, it was amazing, actually. But it, I mean, it... we, you know, we, for all the stick the sun got, we did some really good things. I mean, I did that, I don't know if you remember, we did Ferry Aid. We raised a million quid for the survivors of the Zabruga Ferry. Had yeah. fantastic people involved in it. Paul McCartney did a little video for us. It was, you know, we did achieve things. And I've looked back at that time, just for, for me being a selfish, I suppose, but I had some of the funniest times of my life, not least the Freddie Starr incident, which is always brought up. Oh, share it with us. <laughs> Oh, you don't know about it? Right. I got invited down by, by my late friend Dale Winton said, come to this show, you'll be fine. I thought, all right, I'm not sure about that, it's Freddie Star. Well, I get there and I knew it wasn't going to be fine because I'm sitting one side, Dale's on the other, and I'm targeted. And Gary, and he came for me. And I ended up tied up, blindfolded and strapped to a wall. And I, not knowing the trick, I actually thought he was throwing... Uh, knives at me, which is terrifying. <laughs> at, one, at one stage, he tried to undo his trousers. I thought, I'm not having that. No one needs to see these. <laughs> but no, the fun that you have. But when you think about it, Gary, you know, the newspapers that you were in for years, columnists would have very strong opinions. Yes. Express them clearly. And, and, and kind of, you could agree, you could disagree but it was all part of our democratic process. It definitely was, and there was no attempt to control thought. I mean, I, I, to be honest, as a boy, the first thing I remember reading in newspapers was Keith Waterhouse in the Daily Mirror and Sir John Juner, who my uncle was worked in a, a, the oil uh, plant down at uh, Greenwich, but he used to have the Sunday Express. And I remember reading John Juner saying, this is, this is great, right? And you're right, now the debate is more controlled. Yeah. And we've allowed, I think we've allowed 
ultra-militant crackpot minorities to dictate the national debate and actually control the cultural debate, which is not a very good thing, not very healthy for the country. So the internet arrives... Yeah. ..and the newspaper... Well, the physical sales of newspapers decline, but, hey, newspapers online... So, so still, these big titles are very important. Has the internet helped democracy? Uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly... It's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you, for all the fact that it opens up and you, people can find out more for themselves and see other views, it has spread a lot of nonsense and, and the fake news and the conspiracy it's, it's, it, it is a double-edged sword. Yeah. It, it, it really is. Gary, the other great thing that you... I mean, you know, music, of course. You know, from the 70s... Yes. ..you were yeah. involved with all sorts of groups, some of which were completely unknown and went on to do great things, and, 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 and some didn't. And some were Ozzy Osbourne, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the very first review I did for Sounds in the summer of 1978 was the specials, and it was the first gig they ever played as the specials, cos that morning they'd been to Coventry Automatics, and that night they opened up for The Clash at Aylesbury Friars, and that was just fantastic. British music now... And over the last few years, you know, I go to America a lot and we may get McDonald's and we might get Starbucks and we might get a lot of American telly, but British music is incredibly yeah, strong. huge, and people love it out there. And the fans are less cynical, I find, than we tend to be over here. They, they just seem more open to the music and they genuinely love everything. That... Well, I mean, it really is a big export for us, isn't massive, it? Massive, massive export, yeah. I think people underestimate it, you know. Gary, you were on the telly. I, I'm going to show a clip. Go on. <laughs> a bushel on the telly in the 90s. Have a look at this, folks. I like this most haunted with that Derek Okora. But have they actually ever caught any ghosts on camera? No, never. They must be ever so good at hiding. You can't be swimming today, then, friend. No, I'm still knackered from going yesterday. Well, how far did you swim? Only a mile, but I didn't think I was going to make it. No? The last 300 yards were the hardest. They were over dry land. Maybe the tide had gone out. Ten years ago, I told Swampy all this was going to be a bypass. It's all right, mate, you can come down now. It's a wind-up. <laughs> now, we yes. struggled. We bushel on the box, yes. Gary. We struggled to find <laughs> the clean bits. Neither <laughs> <laughs> if my chest was see-through, you see a broken heart. I can't believe, <laughs> can't believe you say that. No, we it had was, such a lot of fun. But it was racy stuff, wasn't it? Mm. Well, and, and you think we were doing it a half-hour show. I was pretty much writing it every week, um, casting it every week, and just getting people in. We had such a laugh. 50 shows we did, number one on the night network. Uh, had some, I mean, we had some amazing guests. We had everyone from Lily Savage to uh, Bernard Manning on that. <laughs> and what's... I mean, telly now, there are more and more channels... Yes. ..and there's less and less to watch. Oh, there is. That's right. I mean, I'm at home and it's like the deck of the Star Trek Enterprise. You've got Amazon, you've got Instagram, you've got all these different things, like hundreds of choices, but what do you want to... I mean, if, if you find something and you enjoy it, that's the great thing, isn't it? When you actually find that one thing you can consume. Yeah, no. So you've done it all, you know, newspapers, Television, the music world, very long career, uh, English champion, all of those things. And I know that you were a big Brexit believer and supporter. We've known each other a long time. Ever since I was in the socialist work, well, international socialist as a teenager, we were, we were anti the EU. I never saw any reason to change that. <laughs> but you're not an international socialist now, are you? No, but I'll tell you what, I tell you, in my heart, I think I'll always be a socialist, but in my head, 
libertarian, probably. You know, it's a battle between the two major organs. <laughs> and the head normally wins. <laughs> well, as long as we confine the topic to those two organs, we'll be <laughs> a, the debate will be OK. I wouldn't dream of pushing you over there. <laughs> no. Not at this time of day, no. But where are we, Gary? You know, we got Brexit, which was a hell of a struggle. You know, we won a referendum, they tried to stop us, but we got there in the end. A lot down to you. Well, I did, I did my bit. I did my bit. Where do we go now? Because I look at Keir Starmer, who's kind of middle-of-the-road, sort of social democrat. A man who doesn't even know what a woman is. Yeah, what do you think about that? I just think he's weird. It's strange. They're going on about going down rabbit holes. They're the one that gone down rabbit holes. They, they just lost touch with the, ma the mass of working-class people in this country. They just completely out of touch. But you've got a Labour Party who aren't Labour. You've yep. got a Tory party or anything but Conservative. You know, you don't... No-one voted uh, for the Tories to, to for their agreed agenda or for inflation or for tax rises. That's not Conservative. No, so we can, we, we've kind of got two parties that are... They're almost becoming both Social Democrats, sort of battling for that centre-ground space. John Lennon used to say there's an inch of difference between Labour and Tories, and it's in that inch we live. But I don't think there's an inch of difference anymore. I just think they're the same animal. So that's why you've got people like Reform Party or, yeah. or Social Democrats. You just think, well, OK. There's a, there is some choice out there at the moment, not enough promotion for those, for those parties. Gary, you've written about social affairs and current affairs over the years. Putin, Ukraine, how do you feel about things? I, like everyone else, Nigel, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. You're just seeing war crimes happening before your eyes. You're seeing brutality. You're seeing lies. You're seeing the shelling of maternity hospitals, the shelling of refugees. It's disgusting. It really... And the only, the only positive coming out of it for Britain and the West is it might wake us up and make us wake up and realise how, how complacent we've been. Because Putin's looked at us and thought, They've had it. Look at that. Who's their leader? Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe. You know, he, we're so wrapped up in self-doubt and vanity and all this um, self-loathing in the West now that we've lost track of who we are. And we've also been now been reminded how precious our freedoms are and how perilous it can be, how quickly that could go. Just takes one lunatic and we lose all of it. Yeah. So the things we're not even fighting for anymore, like free speech, like free expression, free assembly, all these things we need to keep fighting for. Because the Ukrainians are dying for it. Yeah, it's it's difficult not to admire much of what we see oh, from Ukrainian men, seventy-year-old yeah. men, yeah. picking up rifles, defending their land, defending their land, defending and, their people. Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is corrupt. Ukraine's got huge problems, but that's not the point. No. I, I, do you think we would do that again if we were threatened? Do you know, I was thinking about that the other day. <sighs> You'd like to think so, but. We haven't got access, apart from anything else, we haven't got access to, to the weapons that they've got. <laughs> well, we could get them. We, we could, could get we, them. <laughs> but, uh, have we, I think there's, there are some people still who've got that lion heart in this country. There are still those, some of those people. Um, but you see now, I think, too many of us, too many kids are still teenagers in their mid-twenties. We, we don't let people grow up anymore. It's just like an extended adolescence. And they're all wrapped up in social media, all wrapped up in vanity and... So delusion. why don't we get them reading more novels? There you go. Novels. <laughs> like Lovely the Harry <laughs> Tyler crime pulp go. fiction. Thank thing. you very so much. Tell us about your latest book, Gary. I've just uh, published the fourth <laughs> in the series of the Harry Tyler books, yeah. um, which uh, a, a reviewer very kindly 
suggested that he was almost as hard as Jack Reacher, but a lot roundier. <laughs> He's an undercover copper. Uh, and in the latest book, he goes undercover with, uh, with an East End rock band who are actually a front for a criminal, a criminal gang. So this is his latest challenge. But uh, we got very close to doing a film. Very close. Go, keep going, Gary, yeah. and you'll get it. Oh, I hope Listen, so. thank you for Nigel, joining me. Pleasure. Talking Pines. That was Gary Bushell. Okay, we're coming towards the end of the show. It is Barrage the Farage, where you throw your questions in, I answer them sight unseen. Joe asks, oh, I'm going to get Gary back on this. Should we ditch the BBC licence fee? What do you it's think? It's an anachronism, of course. We used to have taxis on, on uh, windows. We don't need them anymore. This is, it might have made sense when there was this one slate monopoly with television. It might make sense in a duopoly. But the fact that now there's thousands of channels and there's so much choice, how can they justify it? Especially when they spend most of their time attacking us, attacking the working class, attacking England, you know, attacking English traditions. Why, why should we pay for that? Why should we have to fund this nonsense. He's warming up now, he really is. <laughs> Getting into his stride. Anthony asks... Another Guinness, Nigel. <laughs> Anthony asks, is the nuclear deterrent argument now defunct? No. The nuclear deterrent argument is now stronger, perhaps, than it's ever been since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and I really believe in that. I, I really do. Peter asks, if the Ukrainian government accepted... Donetsk, Luhansk and Crimea as independent states and guaranteed not to join NATO and or the EU, do you think this war could be ended? Yes. Yes, I really do. I said this at the top of the show. You know, there would need to be, you know, properly held referendums in, the, in those eastern provinces and Ukraine and, indeed, Russia, Moscow, would have to accept the result. I have always... And I'm not going to apologise for this. I've always thought extending NATO and extending the EU ever eastwards was a geopolitical mistake. And because I say that, it doesn't make me an apologist for what has been done by Putin. I said in the European Parliament in 2014... You guys will cause a war if you go on like this, and I meant it. One last question. Don asks, tea at the Ritz or fish and chips sat on a seawall? Fish and chips every time. I'm with Gary. It's fish and chips on the seawall for me. No question about it. Thank you, folks, for joining me tonight.